On Friday evening, October 10th, 1930, the university held a dedication ceremony for a brand new building. It was situated southeast of the center of campus, a half mile from the main building with its golden dome, which, at the time, was just about 50 years young. This building was different in scale and shape from the others on campus. With a half-mile circumference and more than two million bricks comprising its edifice, Notre Dame Stadium was about to be christened. Accounts of the festivities of the evening were glowing. To paraphrase the reporting of the event in the Scholastic, if the university had ever had such a party, it happened so long before that no one can remember it. Upward of 20,000 people attended the dedication ceremony, and as you might expect, some notable names were on hand. Navy Rear Admiral Samuel Shelburne Robison offered some remarks. It was the Naval Academy's first visit to South Bend to play football. They would lose to the newly called Fighting Irish the next day, 26-2. to But it's likely no one in attendance that Friday evening garnered the same warm reception as a certain larger-than-life guest from England. When scholar and writer G.K. Chesterton made his way to his front-row seat in the stadium bowl, the students erupted. According to one account, the boys chanted, He's a man! Who's a man? He's a Notre Dame man! At first, Chesterton thought the crowd was angry. When he was informed they were cheering him, he burst into a fit of laughter. Gilbert Keith Chesterton was at Notre Dame that fall at the request of President Reverend Charles O'Donnell, who sought to bring guest lecturers to the university to help bolster its academic reputation. You could hardly do better than Mr. Chesterton, who was, at that time, the most famous Catholic writer in the world. Tim O'Malley is Director of Education at the McGrath Institute for Church Life and Academic Director at the Notre Dame Center for Liturgy. Yeah, I mean, Chesterton's writing right after you kind of have an early response to the modern age in England, especially amongst religious thinkers. So you have figures like Newman, John Henry Newman, of which he's following after, uh, and He's responding to all sorts of things going on in British religious life, especially in his Catholic writings, Uh, you know, things related to uh, the rise of a kind of middle Anglicanism in between sort of what was an Anglo-Catholic and otherwise uh, not very committed to the particulars of doctrine, uh, while also being very interested in dialoguing with figures who reject religion altogether. Mm And so you have someone who's trying to respond to, uh, in, the, in a new way, in the early 20th century, late 19th century, to uh, the, what's the state of religion and what's the state of knowledge and what, what does it mean to be human and how do we organize our economy uh, and what is life? Is there a mystery? Are there things we can know and not know? And what does it mean to know these things? So I think he's situated in between this space, you know, right after the, the kind of first response to the Enlightenment, but once it settled in. G.K. Chesterton was one of the most prolific writers of his generation, maybe more. He wrote more than 100 books, contributed to twice that many. 
He composed hundreds of poems, five novels, a couple hundred short stories. And that was mostly in his free time. Chesterton considered himself a journalist, first and foremost, and plied his trade by writing more than 4,000 essays for multiple newspapers, including his own. To his fans, Chesterton said something about everything, and he said it better than almost anyone else. He took up his pen to do intellectual battle with the titans of his day, defending the Christian ideal and meticulously making the case for his positions on every facet of life. His writing converted an atheist named C.S. Lewis to Christianity, and even his ideological foes like George Bernard Shaw couldn't help but be taken by Chesterton's insight, wit, and charm. What I think find interesting about Chesterton is that though he develops this robust response and certainly means to argue, he never does so in a way that's entirely purely polemical, right? Uh, and I think continues this kind of dialogue with a variety of figures uh, in England, you know, including his own, you know, Unitarian-esque upbringing. You know, he knows how to talk to a variety of people. And he's not just talking to, you know, dyed-in-the-wool Roman Catholics. Uh, he, he can still talk to his Anglicans and he can still talk to uh, those coming up in a kind of more secular British environment. At Notre Dame, Chesterton delivered lectures on Victorian literature and history inside Washington Hall. He was invited as a visiting professor, a unique distinction given that Chesterton never attended college. The students who attended his lectures marveled at his style. Chesterton would ascend the stage, take a few minutes to fish his notes out of his pockets, and then completely disregard them for the next hour. He would speak mostly extemporaneously, and never failed to make his audience laugh and think. The talks were well attended, but the scholastics still lamented that more were not so moved to attend the sessions. Chesterton was as interested in the visit as he was the professorship. He would spend hours with students and faculty, discussing literature and poetry, often reciting long passages from memory. He would visit South Bend speakeasies and while away evenings inside Soren Hall. The spectacle of Chesterton's visit and the prospect of yet another championship football team made Notre Dame a lively place. One university historian said that in the fall of 1930, the campus, quote, had a hard time with its dignity. His experience watching the football team route Navy at Notre Dame Stadium inspired Chesterton to write The Arena. In it, he contrasts a celebration of death gladiator combat of Roman times, with a celebration of life, young Catholic football players engaging in, quote, hateless war and harmless mirth on the plains of Indiana. When his time on campus came to a close, Chesterton was awarded an honorary degree. At the ceremony, he spoke about the deep welcome he felt on campus. He attributed that to the institution's name, Our Lady's University. He said, quote, It would not have mattered if the campus was on the mountains of the moon. Where she has erected her pillars, all men are at home, and I knew that I should not find strangers. Well, it meant uh, so much to Chesterton um, when he made his first visit in 1930. He 
um, visited a number of places and enjoyed himself, but his longest stay, and certainly as he himself made clear, uh, Notre Dame was the important place for him. Aidan Mackey is a centenarian and perhaps the last living person to have known people in the Chesterton inner circle. He's himself a Chesterton fan and scholar. Years ago, Mackey came into possession of a good deal of Chesterton's belongings, eight enormous footlocker-sized cases that contained books, drawings, and some of G.K.'s personal effects. The latter sort remind us of the kind of man G.K. Chesterton was. The collection features an old Corona typewriter, but it belonged to Chesterton's secretary, Dorothy Collins. You see, this prolific writer reportedly couldn't type. There are several of G.K.'s walking sticks, notable because he would frequently lose them. There are books in which Chesterton drew extensive doodles and standalone pieces of art. Suffice to say, it's an invaluable trove of insight into the mind and life of a great Catholic intellectual. Eventually, the weight of the responsibility of holding the items caused Mr. Mackey to seek out an organization better suited to their custody. Well, with Notre Dame, it was the discussion about where my collection should go. Uh, It had been in my own house for a long time, and then uh, we were looking for a prestigious place, and there were four or five places who were anxious to get it, but it had to stay in this country. And at the end, it was between the Twickenham which is college, which is now part of the London University, I think, um, and, and Notre Dame. And Notre Dame was easily, in my view, the thing. So I argued very strongly that it should, should be in Notre Dame. Partly because it had already got strong links and loyalty to Chesterton, but also because in its own right it was a good, strong, outgoing place. Yes, and that's what is needed. And not somewhere where they'd be just locked up on the shelf, like as they were in my home. Of course, I had visitors, but not the attention they deserved. The collection is housed at the university's London Global Gateway, just off Trafalgar Square. Last year, the collection was dedicated in a ceremony that drew hundreds of Chesterton scholars from all over the world. Scholars like Ronan Doheny of University College Dublin, who gave us a personalized tour of the items. So here we have a selection of books that Chesterton would have uh, doodled upon. Uh, uh, Chesterton would have scribbled and doodled all all over his books. Um, He would have practiced uh, drawings uh, on the books, uh, often uh, drafting sketches within the books. Um, because his mind was so full of imagination that halfway through reading a book, something would come to his uh, mind and he'd have to uh, scribble it down. So these are uh, three pastel drawings that Chesterton uh, made himself of the ghosts of Beaconsfield. And in this we we see his his humour, of course, coming true. That is a part of what gave Chesterton his appeal. He was keenly self-aware and invited his readers to join him in his humility as he sought a truth he was sure existed. Since the dedication a year ago, a steady rotation of scholars have since visited the Notre Dame campus in London. 
They view and interact with the Chesterton materials. The curious can both see Chesterton's spectacles and in turn get a glimpse of how he viewed the world. And perhaps there is a bit of a full circle moment to all this. Chesterton graciously lent his intellectual prowess to campus in 1930. And now, more than 90 years later, thanks to the careful stewardship of Aidan Mackey, Chesterton's belongings are adding a new scholarly dimension to the University of Notre Dame USA in England, the formal name for the university's presence in London. Here's Tim O'Malley again. Yeah, I mean, the thing about Chesterton that I that I think a lot of people like him is he's quotable. So people sort of take his quotes and they quote him. But it's different to develop a kind of intellectual history of someone. How did they come to think about the way, the things in such a way that they began to think about it? And, and part of that is from what he read and, you know, to be able to, to hold a text and see, okay, this is where his note is. Or you, you suddenly, the text that you're reading from Chesterton come to life. You come to understand the history of his dialogue and that he's part of a narrative that's much larger. And this is very good, I think, for Chestertonian studies uh, because one of the dangers is he is so quotable that that intellectual history or where he comes from is never mentioned. And so if you can locate him in a history, then uh, it suddenly it elevates the scholarship that's going to occur around Chesterton. It's not just this is what G.K. said once upon a time. You're really starting to get uh, an intellectual heritage, and that is going to be interesting for scholars and for students alike. Chesterton is quintessentially not only uh, British, but he's a citizen of London. Mm -hmm. And so part of that reading is the same thing, is to read in the place that these arguments are coming about and... You know, he's arguing about certain visions of economics and social life. This is the place where these arguments are unfolding. Certainly, it's great for all of Europe. I mean, the, the task, of course, with any of these things is to let scholars know that the collection is available and it's open and, and you can go there and read it. But, you know, I have colleagues that work in Scotland, that work in uh, Belgium, and they're interested in Chesterton. And to be able to go there and spend some time with the collection... You know, a kind of equivalent I think about in the United States is that the Newman Library or the Newman Institute in Pittsburgh has this huge collection for Newman studies. And, you know, it's taken a while for them to develop the kind of programming and interest that's leading scholars to come there. You know, I think this is an opportunity for Notre Dame, if we're smart about it, to do the same thing with Chesterton. Mm -hmm. Right? It's going to take lectures and events and fellowships and scholars, but suddenly you're really going to have, I think, interest here, and it raises Notre Dame's profile as a place that people want to go and do research on Chesterton. And I hope, uh, coming to recognize then in Europe, how important Notre Dame is on all sorts of other fronts, right? We want, we want to be recognized as a university, uh, not just here in the United States, but in London in, and throughout all of Europe. And I, I think this is one of the ways that we go about this. It's out of my hands now. And that makes me relaxed. It was a great responsibility. And as with other things, as I've said, I felt out of my depth. Well, now, it's really nothing to do with me. You know, some people are offended if you call them a has-been, but I think it should be taken as a compliment. It has been. I'd be a bit upset if you called me a never was, but to be called a has-been, thank you. 
Notre Dame Stories is produced by the Office of Public Affairs and Communications. I'm your host, Andy Fuller. Our music is by Alex Mansour. 